You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. It's just a horrible situation. Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off, had an accident, got his tree, and went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20. I'm sorry. I'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said. 10. Hence being poked in the rear uh, as a man in the middle of the aisle. Climb now. Given the context that you've given me, this does not sound like a good plan. Clear of conflict. Welcome back to another episode. This is an aviation history podcast, which looks at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, and mishaps, and sometimes just the history of airplanes and people and events that surround them. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator of this podcast. If you want to know more about me, you can go to episode zero and listen to that. If you want to see pictures of the airplanes or the events or whatever to enhance your experience, uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, both at AluminumTube. If you've listened to other episodes, you already know that I always have a co-host who is not an aviation expert. Their role is to ask questions that will help you, the listener, to better understand what actually happened. So my co-host today is a returning co-host, Erin O'Connor. She was on a previous episode. Happy to have you back. Thanks. So excited. Round two. That's it. Round two. So you learned last time that how we run it, right? Mm -hmm. We start with the date and then I'll tell you a little bit about the company and the aircraft and the crew. So we'll talk about all that. And then we talk about the events and we talked about what's changed because of the event. And then we talk about how things are now. Yep. Sometimes I change the order a little bit, but it's all there. All the content is there. I just like to keep it fresh. And sometimes it just makes more sense to do things a little out of order. Totally. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Okay. So this time we're going to go way back. Cool. But not too far. December 29th, 1972. December 29th, 1972. Okay. This is a golden age of rock and roll. I know. That's what. That's that all, is, that's exactly that, where my brain that is, went. That I was is like, what ha- I was like, oh, man. I think rumors came out in 73 from Fleetwood. I'm like, oh, man, there's so much happening in that year. Exactly. And also, that was like the golden age. That's like right in the golden age of aviation, right? So jets just came out and like first class and you could still smoke on an airplane yeah. and like you got you got flight attendants back from my episode coffee tea or me you learn that the flight attendants are wearing like these literally like thousands of dollar like yes. per uniform and they're all sexy and young Ugh. and the pilots are all glorified you know and i mean you could stroll on to a jet and it was like wow you know cool the golden age i love that well it's back before deregulation and like budget airlines and oh totally it was back before southwest killed right it was back before southwest killed the american yeah like aviation experience so it's kind of cool to like look back at those days and be like yeah so the company the company is called eastern airlines or eastern it was a major u.s airline started in 1926 um from the merge from like the merge together of a whole lot of little airlines they went out of business in 1991. They were based in Miami. Pan Am was based in Miami as well. Cool. Um, so there, so Miami was a bigger player then than it is now. Yeah. Eastern was one of the big four, what we call the big four domestic airlines. And in the golden days of aviation, that was Eastern, American, TWA, and United. And we don't have, do we have TWA now? So TWA is gone. Okay. And Eastern is gone. Right. But we still have American and we still have United. Right. Eastern Airlines started just after World War One by a world by a 
saying world war is hard. So <laughs> it was started by a World War One flying ace named Eddie Rickenbacker. And I'm going to do a whole episode on Eddie Rickenbacker. This just guy got is, the name for it. He's fucking fascinating. This guy is... Fa- he was a race car driver. He was a pilot. He was an ace. He, he had like 26 kills. This guy was like such a cool guy. Wow. But anyway, he ran Eastern Airlines for a long time. Eastern Airlines had a complete monopoly on air travel between New York and Florida. Okay. Between the mid-1930s to the mid-1950s. And that's so it. That's If you were going to Florida from New York, you were going on Eastern, period. Got it. And a near monopoly up until 1985. So again, if you were going to New York, you were going on Eastern Airlines. And was that just a matter of circumstance or did they like acquire enough businesses to make sure that they stayed number one? Um, also, Congress actually, back then, before airline deregulation, Congress actually decided on what routes they would dole out to what carriers. Oh. And Eastern was kind of a big carrier, and they just gave all of those routes to Eastern. And Congress back then actually decided how much they could charge for a ticket. Oh, no way. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Super regulated. So it was very regulated. Eastern Airlines is notable for a, a variety of reasons. They pioneered an hourly shuttle. They were the first one to run an hourly shuttle between New York City and Washington, D.C., and then on to Boston. They did that in 1961. In 1972, they became the first airline to ever do... You ever hear this? We're the official carrier of... Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. So they were the first airline to be the official carrier of Walt Disney World. <gasps> oh, how cool. And that was the first like official carrier of... Now we do like the official carrier... Now we do like the, the cat. Oh my goodness. He almost ruined it. Now we do like the official carrier of the New England Patriots. Right, the official right. carrier of uh, Sparkly's Bubblegum. Like it, it's gotten so many carried away. But now, but this was the very first sponsorship That's official so carrier. That's so cool. Of. And how magical it being Walt Disney. And because that was the launch year of Walt Disney World. Oh, in, no way. In Orlando. Yeah. There you go. Okay. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the CEO was Frank Borman. He was a former astronaut. He tried to expand the airline. He tried to make it more efficient. He started the first budget service airline. He ruined it. I was just going to say, I was like, this is not what we like. This doesn't give in us the 80s, supermodel Right, I know. In the 80s, he attendance. ruined it. And what he did is he put passengers on overnight flights where they were carrying mail and cargo under, and they put passengers up on the top. They didn't allow the passengers to carry any checked bags. And if they checked the bags, they charged them. The first charge for checked bags was Eastern Airlines. They also charged them for drinks and snacks. This is all we know now. This is the world now, right? That's it. They also served South America. They served a few places in Europe. They weren't the flag carrier. They weren't the ones that really reached out to the world. That was really Pan Am during this golden era. So if you were going to most places in Europe... You were going on Pan Am. Gotcha. Not really Eastern, but they did some of it. Um, They tried to add more routes to Europe from Miami, but it didn't work out. So because of airline deregulation, like we said, in 1978, that happened. There was some labor disputes. They had some high debt. There was a pilot strike for Eastern Airlines in 1989. Kind of sounded the death knell. Eastern ran out of money. It was liquidated in 1991. But as a side note, Eastern Airlines is a trademark. It's intellectual property. It's paint schemes. They were all purchased by a new company, which is now called East, New Eastern Airlines or Eastern Airlines, right? 
in um, 2012, in early 2020, after being dead for 30 years, Eastern Airlines operated its first passenger flight between JFK and Florida. But I just want to note, we're not talking about the same Eastern. Right. We're not talking about the golden era of Eastern. We're just talking about what happened to the intellectual property of Eastern Airlines. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So it's not like a reboot. No, not really like a reboot. No. Different it, writer, different director. Yeah, yeah. And and sort of like they kind of based it on the structure, you know, you were like inspired by Right, exactly. Gotcha. And we can use their paint schemes and we're kind of gonna do like New York to Florida. We're gonna do South America, but it's not the same company. Gotcha. Just yeah. But it's kind of interesting to note that Eastern still has a name. Like if you asked your mom or your grandma, what do you remember about Eastern Airlines? They would be like, oh, I remember that. It was was, the airline. It was huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the airplane. The airplane is an airplane that is not in service anymore. It's called the L-1011 TriStar. TriStar. Yep. It was built by Lockheed Corporation in Palmdale, California. The original L-1011 flew in November of 1970. Eastern Airlines was its launch customer in 1972. So the same year that this incident or event happens. It was just the third wide-body airliner to ever enter the market. The seven, the Boeing 747 and the DC-10 were also wide-body, which means wide-body means that there's two aisles. So does that mean more passengers Three banks or of more seats. space? It means a little oh, of both. It means a little of both. More luxurious, a little more space, carry higher, higher passenger loads. They only produced about 250 of these. That is really not very many. Okay. Remember, we just said the A3. We, we, we listened to the last episode, which was the A330, and they produced 1,500, and there's still another like 500 on order or whatever. This was 250 total. Why so low? Uh, I'll tell you in a minute. Okay. So there is every 249 of the 250 produced are not in service. Wow. There is one TriStar still flying. It is an airborne observatory, and it is called Stargazer. Cool. So let me show you the airplane real quick. It's pretty. It's pretty. You'll recognize it as a modern jet. It just looks like a modern jet. It's got three engines. Kind of cool. Looks cool. It's a throwback. Stargazer. Yep. So that's the only one that's in operation now. Stargazer. Yeah. Gives me Star-Lord vibes. So the L-1011 has a seating capacity of around 400 passengers, a range greater than 4,000 miles, which makes it capable of international operations. It has three engines, one under each wing and one in the tail. I'm just going to note really quickly to our listeners, I don't have a picture of the DC-10 for you, but the DC-10 kind of had an engine in the tail, but it was exposed. You could kind of see that it was an engine in the tail. Oh, cool. The TriStar, the engine actually kind of sits in the in the back to, of the tube. So all you see is kind of an intake port for the air and an exit port. You don't actually see the engine on the TriStar. So it just has a little bit of a different design. It was more efficient. I showed you the picture of the TriStar. Mm-hmm. It was the first aircraft to have auto land. So airplanes now can land themselves. And they have since the TriStar. It's like the Tesla. It really was. Cool. It was very technologically advanced. They wanted to rival the 747. The 747 was the first airliner that had two decks. So it had a low deck, and then it had like an upper deck with a spiral staircase. And you went up to it, and it had a lounge. And back in the day, golden age age of aviation, you know, it had the lounge up there. You had a bartender in a tux. You had a chef. I mean, it was like exclusive. Mm -hmm. So the L-1011 tried to kind of capture that market. Now they had a lower lounge. So you kind of took a spiral staircase down to a lower lounge. It was posh. Like I said, like 
they're serving hors d'oeuvres and they have a bartender and yeah. they have a chef. So it was really posh. Very decadent. Very cool. It was exactly. It's hard to imagine even now that you had a staircase on a plane. Right. And a bartender. And a bartender. Because now she just says, what do you want? A Coke or a Sprite? Yeah. Basically. It's going to be eight bucks for that Chardonnay, okay? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then you had a bar and everybody was smoking and they're yeah. smoking cigars and they're dressing up to go to the I know, airport. I was just imagining the outfits that were coming into this. Those like patent leather, like white booties are everywhere. Ugh. So you asked about the L1011, why it wasn't a commercial success. Right. So it was never a huge commercial success because it was so advanced. And that means it was expensive. It was produced between 1968 and 1984. They only made 250. And after production ended, Lockheed withdrew from the commercial aviation market entirely. And now they're a defense contractor. They build fighter jets, essentially. Oh, wow. They went from... Now they're called Lockheed Martin... (laughs) Bars and now they're making defense weapons. Yes, um, they're or, it's it, they merged with a, some company called Martin and now they're Lockheed Martin. Hmm. So, but it's interesting because the L ten eleven was the last wide wide body airplane to be produced by a company other than either Boeing or Airbus. Hmm. The last one, the very last one. Gotcha. So you can see how the duopoly of Boeing and Airbus has lasted for decades. Right, they kicked out everybody else, and they're like, "All right, it's just us." It's just us. Right. And this is kind of how we grew the 737, right? Because there wasn't anybody else to go to. So Boeing was like, just buy the 737. We're going to build it however we want. And now we have the 737 disaster where it killed. And then it's been grounded for since like March of 2019. So that's, that's what, that's bad news. That's what happens in no competition. That's what happens. There's nobody to question it. Right. Or to offer alternatives. So the specific airplane we're talking about today was delivered to Eastern Airlines in August of 1972. It was just the 10th TriStar that they had taken delivery of. And remember, the event takes place in December of 1972. Just keep that in mind. It's going to come up. I don't usually, I don't like to use crew names. I've had to in the past a few times. In this case, it's actually important, and we're going to have to get familiar with the crew. Okay. It's a good story, but we got to know who does what. You got it. Okay. There are three pilots up front in the cockpit. In these older airliners, you had a flight engineer who sat sideways behind the first officer. So you have the captain on the left, the first officer on the right, and a sideways seat sitting behind the first officer. And that was specifically the engineer? That's called the flight engineer, and he okay. he monitors the stuff that the pilots don't. Like, he transfers fuel, and he makes sure the hydraulics are good, and that's kind of before computers did it. Gotcha. Now computers do it. Of course they do. So we don't have to worry about it. The captain, his name is Bob Loft. He's age 55. Captain Loft had been with Eastern Airlines for 32 years. That guy had around 30,000 hours flying, which is a crazy number because if you do the math, that means he spent three years and five months in the cockpit of an airplane flying it. That's over wild. His, over his career, right? He's the professor of flying. He really is. Captain Loft okay. had logged just 280 hours, though, in that airplane, in that type of airplane. Oh, okay. Well, so it's only had, been out since August, right. and it's December. So, exactly. Yeah. So he had lots of time in airplanes, but he, ha- he only had 280 hours, which isn't very much. Right. So let's see. that. Let's move on to the first officer. The first officer's name is Bert Stockstill. He's age 39. He was very experienced as well. Six, 7,000 hours. He had just 300 hours in the L-1011. Right? So he doesn't have much time in the airplane, but he's also very experienced. And then you have the flight engineer. His name is Don Repo. 
Okay, so we have Captain Bob Loft, we have First Officer Bert Stockstill, and we have Don Repo. Uh, he's the flight engineer. He's age 51. Again, tons of experience in airplanes, only 53 hours total in this oh type. But I mean, how do you get experience with a brand new aircraft? You know, This like, is how you this... do it. Yeah. You just, you're going to have to like launch a new airplane. You're going to have to go out and fly it. Right. And like, you're th- going to put the people that have, you know, 30, 40 years of experience you know, in charge of that, regardless of whether they've flown it or not. Right. And, and you just touched on it. The aircraft was just the 10th TriStar delivered to the carrier, to the company. And since Eastern Airlines was the launch customer, we may be looking right here at one of the most experienced TriStar crews in the world at this time, right? Yeah. Because the airplane really has only been out for less than a year. These guys have some t- experience in it. They may be the most experienced crew right, out there flying it. So... You can see that there's a learning curve, right? But there is another Eastern Airlines employee in the cockpit. He's a, what's what we call a jump seater. He's there in the beginning of the flight, and he's a senior technical advisor on the L-1011. So he's a mechanic. His name is Angelo um, Donadeo. Angelo Donadeo. And we'll go over the names again, so you don't have to... I know, I'm, yeah. I'm like, I got Loft, Stockstill, Repo, Donadeo. Donadeo, right. But there were uh, so there was a first class seat open. Donadeo was in the cockpit in the jump seat just for takeoff. There was a first class seat open. He got up after the airplane took off. He went back and he sat in the first class seat. He didn't need to be on the. He he was just like I right. just want to get back to. They were going to Miami from JFK, and he just wanted to get back home. That was it. So this plane is really new, new to the company, new to the pilots. There's a steep learning curve, like we said. Ten flight attendants on board. Yep. Yeah, because big, Let's do big it. airplane. So the events. This is called Eastern Airlines Flight 401. Stop me if you're familiar. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I got it. We're all set. It's a six-month-old Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. It took off from JFK at 9.30 p.m. on December 29th, 1972. The plane could carry about 225 passengers. Imagine, by the way, putting only 225 passengers on that huge airplane. Those seats were wide. They were spaced out well. They were cozy. They were comfortable. Ugh. They there were there were seats for two hundred and twenty five people, but there were only one hundred and sixty three. Oh wow, yeah. roomy. Mm-hmm. The flight's just over two hours long, completely uneventful. Okay. The TriStar joins Miami Air Traffic Control, and they line up for final approach to Miami International, and they're landing from the west to the east. So they're out over the Everglades. They're landing toward the ocean. Okay. Okay. In the evening. Yep. So first officer Bert Stockstill, he's the pilot flying. And Captain Bob Loft, he's operating the radios. They join the final, and at about 1,500 feet, which is normal, Bert asks Captain Bob to put the gear down. He put the gear down. They got a landing gear warning horn. And a little green light that indicates whether the nose wheel is down or up, it didn't come on. So they don't know what position it's in. They don't know. They just know we have a horn and that light's not on. That tells us that the gear's down. That's all they know. So Captain Bob calls the Miami controllers and he says he has a potentially, he has a gear problem. They tell Captain Bob to head out southwest over the Everglades, enter holding pattern, climb up to 2,000 feet, and then that'll give them plenty of time to work through the problem. There's other ways to ver- to verify the gear is down. I was going to say, does that sort itself out? Like what would be... We'll get, we're getting there. Okay. We're getting there. It's, it's not really an emergency. All right. So we're like, oh, I got to figure this out. Give me yeah. a few minutes. So First Officer Bert uh, Stockstill, he's hand flying the airplane. They climb up to 2,000 feet, they level off, and they enter the holding pattern as assigned. Captain Bob Loft, 
quote, put the son of a bitch on autopilot. See if we can get the light out, unquote. Bert, I love you. <laughs> he all of a sudden looks like Burt Reynolds, you know? That was Captain Bob said that. Captain Bob Lodge, oh, Captain he says, Bob. put the son of a bitch on autopilot here. See if we can, see if you can get the light out, unquote. And then they talk about the problem. They decide that trying to replace the bulbs is the best course of action. It wasn't the only way to verify that the gear was down, but it was the easiest way. By changing the bulbs? So they think maybe the bulbs are burned out. Okay. In the, so they're, what they're going to do is they're going to like, their little indicator light, they're going to pop it out. They're going to put new light bulbs in and they're going to put it back in. Yeah, that seems okay. like the easiest. That's the easiest mm-hmm. way. Now, there are other ways, but they're, that's the easiest. So Captain Bob Loft, he looked way over and the indicator is on Bert's side. And he says, quote, I can't reach it from here. You'll have to get it, unquote. The flight engineer, Don Repo, had gotten up and he's now standing behind Bert, who's the pilot flying, the first officer. He's standing behind his seat. He leans over and he pulls on the bulb and he says, I can't, I can't pull it out either. So they're kind of messing with this bulb, right? He can't pull it out. So the guy who is in the back, Donadeo, mm-hmm. Angelo Donadeo, he notices that the gear has been put down because he's sitting in first class. He notices the gear's been put down and the airplane's turning away from the airport. So he's like, why is the gear down and we're turning away from the airport? Because Captain Bob said, let's not mess with the gear. Let's just figure out if it's up or down before we do anything. Which seems reasonable. Yeah, like, totally Like, take care reasonable. of the simple and then simple, if, yeah, we'll and go if, from there. Hey, if it's all good, we're just going to leave the gear down. We're just going to come around. We're just land. No problem. Okay. Angelo Donadeo, he comes up to the cockpit. First officer, Bert Stockstill. He's the one who's supposed to be flying the airplane or he's supposed to be monitoring the autopilot to fly the airplane. Right, so, so they put the son of a bitch in autopilot. Right. And Bert is supposed and to Bert's be now watching it. monitoring and watching it while the other people are working through the problem. But Bert Stock, but Bert Stock still, he's the only one that can reach the bulb. So he's now not watching the autopilot. He's going to help with the bulb. Right. So he reaches over and he pulls the bulb out and he gets it out and he hands it back to Don Repo, who's the guy behind him, the flight engineer. Mm-hmm. It's a little plastic green cube. Okay. Inside the little plastic cube were two small light bulbs called peanut bulbs. Angelo Donadeo recalls that he looked across the flight deck and saw Don Repo, the flight engineer, looking at the fixture, but he didn't see that he actually removed the bulbs or put new ones in, even though they had spare bulbs in the cockpit. So they took the bulb out, but they didn't they put new like bulbs in? They kind of like pulled the in? thing out and he looked at it. They didn't change the bulbs, but then Repo leans back over Bert and he pushes the, <laughs> the thing back into the socket but he gets it sideways. <laughs> Captain, to say you had one job in that moment is like... <sighs> yeah. Captain Bob Loft. peg, round hole. Captain Bob Loft. Quote, you got it in there sideways. Don Repo. Quote, nah, I don't think it'll fit. You got to turn it one quarter turn to the left. Unquote. So he had put it in sideways. <laughs> but now it's jammed in there. And it's still not working. Okay? And their dialogue suggests how concerned they are. Right. <laughs> so remember we said that there were other ways to confirm that the gear was down? Yeah. Let's do one of those now. Yeah. So Captain Bob... He chooses one. He turns to Repo, who had just crammed the, the thing into the, you know, Repo. and he says, hey, get down there and see if the goddamn nose wheel's down. <laughs> and he's saying by down there, he's actually referring to a, an, avi- uh, an avionics bay, a service bay that, sit, that sits underneath the cockpit. There's a hatch in the cockpit. You pull up and you climb down a little ladder. Oh, cool. And down there, there's a little sight glass and you just look through it and you can see if the landing gear is down. Oh, convenient. Yeah, exactly. Genius. They Yeah, they built it so you could tell. They normally call these spaces in all airplanes. It's kind of a colloquialism that we call them hell holes because they're cramped, they're hot, there's like sharp metal everywhere. Yeah. So basically, you know, it's the access, it's the little service bay, but he calls it the hell hole. 
So somewhere in all this confusion, one of the pilots has bumped the control column, so the steering. Mm-hmm. One of them bumps it pretty hard, and if you bump it hard enough, you can turn off, make the autopilot turn off. I was off. just going to say, I'm like, this is like cruise control, where all of a sudden you hit the brake and it's off. Right, but, but nobody notices. So, so let me, you touch the equipment and you don't think, maybe I should check. I, you just Somebody bumped it. We don't know who, and they just didn't notice. So, But let me, let me paint the picture for you. Okay. So here we are. We're over the over the Everglades. It's black below you. Yep. Moonless night. Yep. Okay. There are no lights below them. There's no moon. So they didn't notice that the airplane had then started a very shallow descent. Very shallow. They were what, two thousand feet? They're at only two thousand feet. That's not that's not very high. Okay. So the flight engineer, Don, he goes down into the hell hole so he can visually and check. And they don't feel this? Like- no, because in actually in the first few minutes of the autopilot being off they only descended 250 feet okay so it's very shallow right there wasn't this like big dip no there's no dip they don't feel anything it's just very very shallow so there started a very shallow descent so don repo the flight engineer he goes down into the hellhole so he can check the landing gear well while he's down there there's a quiet low altitude warning chime that starts to go off at his position, at his <gasps> station. So he's not there to hear it. But he's not there to hear it. And the other guys are talking. They're yabbering about oh, the Bill's light. Oh, Bill's just ripping through conversation with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth like, Jesus exactly. Christ. Honestly, honestly Bert and, Bert and, um, and Captain Bob, they're- Oh, Bob, Bob, yeah. Right, they're sitting there, they're talking back and forth about how to get the light bulb out. Like, I read the conversation. It's not worth putting in here. They're just like, man, if I had a pair of pliers, I could get this thing out. Maybe I can wrap a tissue around it and stuff like that. Keep from breaking it. it I mean, it was a, it, they're really just talking about this light. Okay. So the warning chime goes off. You can hear it in the cockpit voice recorder, but it's pretty quiet. Everybody ignores it. So Bert Stock still, he's still trying to, Bert Stock still, he's flying the airplane. Okay. But he's still trying to remove the jam light. It, so yes, he's but he was the one in charge of monitoring the autopilot Correct. slash flying thing. Yeah, yep. and he's still. Why he, are you worried about the light? And he talks about pliers, like we said, and and then and then Don Repo, he actually's standing in the hellhole with his head sticking out, and he's talking to Bert. Well, he's supposed to be checking the landing gear. Yeah, exactly. Why so, even do it? Why even go down there if you're just going to pop your head up and talk? So Captain Bob loses his patience. Yeah, I don't and he you, says Bob Loft's Bob Loft's quote. To hell with this. To hell with this. Go down there and see if it's lined up. That's all we care. Let's not fuck around with the goddamn 20-cent piece of light equipment we got on this bastard. Thank you, Bob. Although you haven't always been the the light in this situation, I think that you're guiding us home here. So just do it. Right. So Don Repo, he goes down the ladder into the bay. Mm -hmm. Okay? But the light's off in the bay, and he can't figure out how to turn it on. Because remember, he's only got like 50 hours on this airplane. He can't see because... He can't find the indicator because there's no light. So he pops his head back up and he says to Bob Loft, there's no goddamn light down there. And Bob goes, oh, 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 yeah, that's right, right. And he reaches around and he turns it on. Oh. Okay, over his head. Now, remember that Angelo Donadeo is in the cockpit. And he's just observing all of this. He's just watching this happen. Repo sees the light on. Donadeo sees the light on. He's the senior, senior technical advisor just riding along. He goes down into the bay Repo goes down into the bay, then Donadeo goes with him. Ooh, how okay? much room is there down there? There's a so oh. four by four. Okay. Enough, Enough space for them to stand. To see, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. But not I mean, it's gonna be cozy. But as Donadeo goes down, he remembers or he he looks back and he notices that 
the first officer, Bert Stockstill, he has his right hand on the yoke. Okay, so he's sitting on the right side. So he has his right hand on the yoke, but he's still pushing and pulling the light bulb with his left hand. So he's so still the yoke is is what's steering the control column. Is, okay, the control right, column. That's the okay. control column. So and he's, he's got his right hand on the it. The GD light alone. And he's still fucking with the bulb. Okay. At this point, Donadeo also notices that Captain Bob Loff has his seatbelt off. And he's leaning across. And he's got one hand up on the dash. He's got the other hand in front of the throttles. And he's fucking with the light, trying to fuck with the light and help. Oh, my God. Okay, so now you have first officer. He's messing with the light. The captain, he's messing with the light. The flight engineer, low altitude alert going no off. No one's there to at hear his panel, it. So. But he can't hear it. And they're ignoring it. And Donadeo and Repo both go down where they're just going to check have the gear. either of them even looked yet? I mean, it's like they've been down there for however long, and I'm like, what's going on? They're the having a conversation here? with his head sticking out of the hole. It's like, oh. oh. All this time, the alt- altitude alerter is going off. The airplane is very slowly descending. At this point, we hear the controller, and he comes on, and he tells another airplane, descend to 1,500 feet and some other stuff, okay? And we sort of get the impression that the first officer, Bert Stockstill, is like jarred back to reality and he's back in the cockpit suddenly and he and the cvr is a little silence for a second and then he says we did something to the altitude and captain loft replies quote what and then first officer bert stock still replies we're still at 2000 right captain loft says quote hey what's happening here unquote oh my goodness take a breath <laughs> okay yeah Whew. okay okay well at least they woke up yeah, they woke up. Let's just see if they fucked it up for everybody at this point. At around 225 miles per hour, the left wing touches the swamp. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Then the left engine and then the left landing gear. Oh, my goodness. The terrain was flat marsh with sawgrass and cattails 10 feet tall, growing in 12 inches of water. It's the Everglades. The L-1011 slashes three long trails through the marsh each five feet wide and more than 100 feet long. When the main part of the fuselage touches down, it continued through the grass and water and slowly disintegrated as it went. <sighs> From the first impact to stop, the TriStar travels more than a third of a mile. Somewhere along the, pla- uh, the path, the airplane slews around and starts sliding backwards. It breaks into three large pieces and a whole lot of tiny ones. Oh my gosh. <sighs> 75 people survive. How many passengers were there again? 165? 67 of the 163 passengers and eight of the 10 flight attendants survive. Oh my goodness. There are lots of amazing survival stories. There are so many amazing stories about what happened. So we have lots of eyewitness accounts. But most of them, and I read through most of them, most of the survivors recall a very similar experience. A relatively smooth touchdown. Most thought they had landed on the runway. Followed by a bounce and then a hard impact, then a violent rotation, and then the airplane went black. They were splashed with water and jet fuel as the ride came to a stop. Most cited that they were afraid of fire. Some of the survivors even said that dazed passengers acted as though they had arrived for a moment and then were very confused. Every person that was alive was injured. Oh, of course. Being alive is the miracle of it. The injury is the assumption. So of the cockpit crew, flight engineer Don Repo and technical officer Angelo Donadeo survived the initial crash. Both initial were crash. down in the electronics bay, remember? First officer Bert Stockstill was killed on impact, 
and Captain Loft died in the wreckage before they could transport him. Don Repo was evacuated to the hospital, but he died of his injuries in hospital. Angelo Donadeo, the lone survivor of the four flight deck occupants, recovered from his injuries. Wow. Yep. Most of the the fatalities of the passengers were in the aircraft's midsection. Is that where it broke up? Well, it broke into three pieces. Yeah, and it really... The wings came off and it really disintegrated in the center section. And that's really, we kind of had a nose section, a disintegrated center section, and then a relatively intact tail section. Interesting. Yeah. So that's how it broke up. It's remarkable that anyone lived. I know. I know. I mean, at at all, right? We have to thank the soft swamp, basically. Right. Because it absorbed the energy of the crash. However, the rescuers said the mud had blocked a lot of the wounds that were stained by the survivors, preventing them from bleeding out. But it caused severe infection in eight of them because they were covered in swamp mud and very badly injured. Yeah, yeah. All the survivors were injured. 60 received serious injuries. 17 suffered minor injuries. No way. Minor injuries, 17 of them. Could you imagine being one of those 17 people? Like, And those people didn't require good? hospitalization. What? Right. Walked away. Walked away. <laughs> 14 of the survivors had various degrees of burn because when the airplane touched down, some other airplanes said that it, it had briefly flashed over with an explosion, but nobody in the cockpit remembers that it had flashed over, but some people were burned. Whoa. So- they think that it misted fuel and flashed I'm, over. Yeah. And then kind of like settled into the swamp. That's crazy. That's wild. It really is. Do you need a second to process? Because we're about to just talk about the rescue. No, I, I think I just want to recap for one second. Right. Okay, so we got the two guys in the hellhole. Yep. We got the two, quote unquote, flying the plane, futzing with the little light. They were 2,000 feet in the air. Yep. The autopilot gets bumped. How long did it take for them to go the 2,000 feet into the marsh and and the only... Oh, first of all, that's my first question. How long did that take from the autopilot bump till... It was a long time. It was around 10 minutes. That's... I mean, 10 minutes is a long time, but it also in the same breath, like I could easily lose 10 minutes and not even know. So right. it's like... Yeah, I mean, the, their Don, reaction time was minimal, but yeah, like, Donadeo came oh, up. Wow. He went down in the hellhole. He came back up. They were having some conversation. They were messing with the light bulb. Like a lot of stuff happened. It wasn't quite ten minutes. It was like eight minutes. Yeah, but even um, so, those still pretty. So quick, they were though. descending like hundred and fifty feet a minute. That's not wow. very. I mean, and that's why they didn't feel it. It was very shallow. Yeah, very so shallow. Eight minutes. Ten and they minutes had is no quick. reference, and they Just had no bump. reference. It's crazy, isn't it? And that's and the only warning they had was a little altitude alert. That was it in the yeah in the flight engineer's panel. Wow. That's it. Just a little buzz back there going eep eep eep, and everybody ignored it. Oh my goodness! You would think that you know you're you're coming down that quickly that there would be some type of warning. You know, like my car yells at me if I'm going to back up in a backup camera. Yeah. You know, and I'm like five feet right, from the but- curb. But here's what happens in aviation is we learn all the things we do with airplane design, all the rules we have, they're all written in blood. What happened after this was we got altitude alerters that were clear and obvious. Ooh, I like that written in blood. Yeah, that's true. That sounds, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about the rescue. Let's talk about it. Okay. An airboat was the first to arrive on the scene. Airboat. Yep. He was just a, a park ranger in the Everglades. 
a boat with a big the boat with the big yeah. fan yeah, yeah, on yeah, the yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Those and he was so the first cool. to arrive. And he, and he arrived at the scene within minutes. No way. He just he happened saw to the go flash through. and oh, he okay, was okay. close by and he just turned his boat and he went right to it. Wow. Um, he helped to pull a lot of people out of the wreckage. And then other airboats arrived. So there's something in Florida called frog gigging where you go out and you cruise along with your airboat and you get frogs and you make them into, you know, like frog legs. You fry Yellow. them and make them into frog legs. And there were a lot of airboats out gigging frogs. <laughs> Giggity. Yep, exactly. Giggity frogs. <laughs> it was followed by several other airboats. Now, remember I said the Eastern Airlines was based in Miami? Yes. This happened in the Everglades. Then Frank Borman, who became the president, he was an astronaut. He was then the VP. He shows up at the scene within 30 minutes. Wow. And this is kind of interesting. One rescuer recalls being greeted very professionally by Frank Borman, who had arrived in a helicopter. The rescuer said he was thinking, quote, how weird is it that I'm standing in the middle of a swamp in the middle of the night meeting an astronaut? Unquote. <laughs> Little relativity check. Right. It, it is weird. So what happened? Yeah. Okay. I'm the NTSB found a small design flaw in the design of both the landing gear indicator and the autopilot's lack of an appropriate disengagement alerter. What we got from this, Lockheed fixed these problems immediately. What we got from this was the altitude alerter was moved from the panel behind the first officer right, right to the front. And then we also got a tone for when the autopilot is disconnected. And we still have that tone today. You click right. the autopilot off for any reason, it starts going whoop, whoop, whoop. Great. Whoop, and you got to click it again to acknowledge it. Yeah, it says, bitch, listen to me. Right. Hey, this is a really loud horn. Yeah. You can't even talk over it. Right. So that happened. They fixed it immediately. But the bulk of the blame, according to the, NDS, according to the uh, NTSB, lies on the flight crew. Yeah. Everyone Sorry, was distracted and nobody was flying the airplane like teenagers with their first car just not paying attention we actually learned a lot of less a lot of lessons from this fly the airplane quote unquote fly the airplane has become a centralized concept in the operation of all aircraft someone is always actively only doing one thing which is monitoring the airplane regardless of the crazy stuff that goes on around you there is one person who does one thing which is monitor the airplane. So we tie this in now into what's called crew resource management, which didn't come around until the mid 80s, right? Because we're talking about 1972. It didn't come around to the mid 80s, but it's a core of being a pilot to this day. It remains probably the most important concept for pilots. What we say, fly the fucking airplane. That's it. One job. You got one job. When things go bad, fly the airplane. Just keep flying the airplane. Right. Just keep flying the airplane. Somebody is always flying the airplane. Are we better now? Yeah, but we're still human. Yeah. We can still get distracted. I'm not going to say this couldn't happen today. I'm just going to say it You're would better be better prepared. If it, it would be very happen. unlikely. Yeah. It would be very unlikely because of technology, because of our training. Mm -hmm. It could happen, but it would be. It like wouldn't I happen say, the same way. You no. know, because the, those. Those things that you needed in that situation they all were came, addressed. They all came together. Yeah. But here's where it gets weird. Ooh. The story's not over. <laughs> in early 1973, remember this happened in December of 1972. 29th. Gotcha. Yeah. In early 1973, a captain on an Eastern Airlines flight from Newark to Miami was asked to check on a passenger in first class. The passenger in question was another Eastern Airlines pilot 
but that person wasn't listed on the flight manifest. The man was dressed in a full captain's uniform. He hadn't responded to questions <gasps> from the senior flight attendant. He was just sort of staring straight ahead. When the aircraft captain approached, he exclaimed, quote, My God, it's Bob Loft, unquote. Oh. It should have been a welcome meeting between old colleagues, but there was just one problem. Bob Loft's dead! Bob Loft had been dead for months. <sighs> but it gets worse. One female passenger called a flight attendant because she was concerned about a quiet, unresponsive man wearing an Eastern Airlines uniform and sitting in the seat next to her. The man is said to have disappeared in full view of both them and several other passengers, and when later shown a sheet of photos depicting Eastern flight engineers, she identified Don Repo as the man she had seen. Oh, my God. (laughs) What areas were these planes? So they're all Eastern Airlines airplanes. They're all coming from New York and going to Miami. Oh, even creepier. Yep. They're all going to Miami. Haunting their same flight. So over the next year and a half, numerous Eastern Airline employees reported seeing the ghosts of Repo and Loft on other Eastern Airlines flight, and it becomes hard to dispute some of these claims because some of them were witnessed by up to 10 people. Right. Like, this isn't like one person. This isn't Kristen Wiig and Bridesmaids claiming that there's a lady churning butter on the wing. This is like 10 people that are right. telling you that they're seeing this. That holy shit. This is happening. And like in full... Like full body, full, and they're 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 calling the attention. Like right. this person is unresponsive. Right, you have passengers being like, "Hey, there's something wrong with this guy." Wow, and he disappears. I really hope that there are other pilots out there that have like Bob in their ear on that same plane, and he's like, "Put the son of a bitch." What does he say? <laughs> that <was> so good. <laughs> Put the son of a bitch on autopilot. Autopilot, exactly. I love it. So in one instance. A flight engineer, another flight engineer, was midway through his pre-flight inspection when Don Repo, a friend of his, appeared to him and said, quote, you don't need to worry about the, pre- the pre-flight. I've already done it, unquote. <gasps> so that was another flight engineer who oh knew Don Repo. God. Got your back, bro. The ghost of Don Repo was the most seen. Aww. Another time, an entire Eastern cockpit crew saw Repo just sitting among them before a flight. Aww. Another crew claimed that Repo had warned them about a faulty electrical circuit, which was found and repaired. Wow. Yep. Faye Merriweather, who's a flight attendant, she saw the reflection of Don Repo's face looking at her from an oven door in the galley. She got two other co-workers who both looked at the reflection in the oven door. One of them was the flight engineer, who immediately recognized Don as one of his friends. All three of them then heard Don Repo warn them to, quote, watch out for fire on this airplane. The plane later encountered serious engine trouble on the last leg of its flight, and, it, and the flight was canceled. But it's interesting to note that the galley of that plane had been salvaged from, from. 401. <gasps> Stop it! <laughs> I know. In haunted planes. So meanwhile, the logbooks, oh. management, caught, management caught wind of this. The logbooks from nearly all the flights from which the sightings were reported, began to disappear. And that was significant because Eastern Airlines crews were taught to write down anything abnormal on board. Right. So they were writing down sightings, and those logbook entries were disappearing. Wow. Now, this is back in the day when you could shred something. Yeah, right, right. right? You can't just like get the emails or the text messages. Yeah, like, oh, no way. You could kind There's of pull no those things out, right? Point. Exactly. Even in Eastern Airlines, vice president saw Bob Loft on a plane 
that was preparing to take off from JFK, and he reported it to the crew. Wow. And they wrote it down in the book. Do they have record of any of these books? They do. Actually, we're going to cover that in a minute. An account of the sightings was printed in a 1974 issue of Flight Safety Foundation newsletter. No way. Which is a trade publication. It has never printed another story about Supernatural and it had not before. They're not known for printing stuff about the Right, right. This isn't like, you know... No, this is a, a trade... filler ma- piece. This is like, this is happening. Right, that's not... A, it's not a city paper. It's not a zine, right? Yeah. It's like, this is like an industry standard paper. Yeah. Yeah, it's really weird. Eastern Airlines officially dismissed the ghost story. Then CEO became CEO. Frank Borman went on to call the tales garbage. Oh, come on. In Robert Serling's book in 1980 called let's say, called From Captain to Colonel. Um, and that was an, inf- it's called From Captain to Colonel, an informal an informal history of Eastern Airlines. And it was written by a guy named Robert Serling. Oddly though, the author was the older brother of the Twilight Zone creator. No way. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Did he reference? Uh, the Twilight Zone or anything? I mean, well, if you reference no. Bob and if you reference Repo, that I mean, technically that could be an overlap, but. That is a, right, absolutely, I agree. So eventually, the the stories became so persistent and prevalent that Eastern Airlines management issued a warning to its employees that they would be fired if they were (gasps) caught disseminating what they said were ghost stories. Oh, my gosh. Major Mm -hmm. employers threatening to fire employees because they're telling the truth of what they're seeing? That's shocking. Oh, yeah, exactly. That never happens. Are you kidding me? Wow, silencing them. The majority of this is documented in Fuller's book, and the title is The Ghost of Flight 401. (sighs) The book was adapted into a, ni- a 1978 made-for-TV movie <gasps> starring Ernest Borgnine as the flight engineer based on Repo and a young Kim Basinger. Oh, I know what I'm doing tonight. As one of the surviving flight attendants. Stop it. Isn't that cool? Oh, my gosh. Yep. That's amazing. It was like it was big news. Oh, totally. It was like a cultural phenomenon. A hundred percent. And especially because we started this episode by saying you're in the golden age. So like the idea of flight is already romanticized and now right. you're adding this tragic horror to it. Done. It's unbelievable. So you did you say about Fleetwood Mac of in the beginning? Yeah, you mentioned Fleetwood Mac. Uh-huh. In fact, the story went so far into, so deep into popular culture that Bob Welsh, <gasps> formerly of Fleetwood Mac, he recorded a song. Oh my God. And it's titled The Ghost of Flight 401 on his 1979 solo album, Three Hearts. Wow. I had no interest in that album, but now I do. No. I, now, I think it's a <laughs> shit song. I listened to it, and I'm, we're going to go out on that song. Oh, my gosh. Yes, let's do it. So y'all could get a soundbite. I'm, I'm not a big fan, but I'd like to thank you, Aaron, for coming. Oh, my I gosh. I so appreciate it. I love thank your reactions. You so wild. What, so what are your thoughts? Um, that is the coolest story ever because we've added sweet vintage throwbacks with a whole lot of history. And then I'm also learning about sweet ghost stories attached to it. Awfully tragic that so many people have died, which is terrible. Right. We've fixed a lot of mistakes, but I mean, you don't get a bundled story like that. Like that is is neatly tied up. I agree. It's incredible. It, it it was it was a great story. It was fun to write. It took me a long time to write it. Oh, of course. <laughs> so my sources, I used um, John Fuller's 1976 book, The Ghost of Flight 401, and that was the year I was born, 1976. So that's an old book. Um, Robert J. Searling's 1980 book, 
uh, from Captain to Colonel, an informal history of Eastern Airlines. I used a website called the official Eastern Airlines Flight 401 History, Photos, Survivors, and Tribute Case Study. That's where I got all of the eyewitness accounts and kind of compiled them down into kind of like one sort of sensation uh, so we could kind of give people the idea of what had happened when right. the airplane touched down. And then I used some other websites, one called The Ghost That Followed Flight 401, a website called Flight 401, The Ghost Crew of Eastern Airlines, and then In Flight 401, 1972, Jumbo Jet Crash was the worst aviation disaster in state history. So I used all those sources and kind of put this together, and I hope you enjoyed it. I loved it. I it loved was... It. Uh, crazy that's wild it's a crazy one beat the crocodile awesome all right so here here's the uh so here's the song oh i'm excited you've heard about the flying dutchman the ghost of all the ships at sea but just in case you think it's lies then here's a ghost for our own time you see there was a crash at night the pilots in command all died And after many months had passed The widows all had cried their last And when the moon shines on the silver wave When the moon shines on the silver wave When the moon shines Look out, here comes The ghost of flight 401 Ghost of Flight 401 Appeared aboard the jet airplanes In flesh and blood and clothes he came On an eastern airline I can't name But suddenly the ghost appeared Of the pilots that had died that year I'm not saying they were puffs of smoke They were real as life It ain't no joke Shines on the silver wave when the moon shines on the silver wave when the moon shines. Look out, here comes the ghost of flight 401. Ghost of Flight 401 Ghost of Flight 401